curse says, may you live in interesting times. Politahoot was created for those in need of therapy after the 2016 election results. If you find that you disagree with, strongly oppose the viewpoints, or are offended by the thoughts and ideas presented here, we would hate to have you so distressed. After all, we realize that all great minds simply do not think alike. So feel free to turn us off. And as communication is a two-way street and you find the need to inform us of your own take on the show, go to our website and leave a note at www.politahoot.net. We'd love to hear from you. But if you get nasty, we might read your troll speak on the air and it won't be pretty. As the First Lady of the United States says, Be based. And welcome to Politahoot today. Today we have a very special guest, Sonia Nazario. She is the author of Enrique's Journey. Sonia is an award-winning journalist whose stories have tackled some of this country's most intractable problems, hunger, drug addiction, immigration. And they've won some of the most prestigious journalism and book awards. 
She's best known for Enrique's journey, her story of a Honduran boy's struggle to find his mother in the United States. It was published as a series in the LA Times. Enrique's journey won the Pulitzer Prize for feature writing in 2003. It was turned into a book by Random House and became a national bestseller. So I'd like to very warmly welcome Sonia Nazario. How are you, Sonia? Thank you. Delighted to be here. Oh, I'm so delighted that you are here because I want to share your story. Uh, let's start with Enrique. You first sure. became aware of the plight of the immigrant children coming out of Central America and Mexico because of a short conversation you had with your housekeeper. Do you want to tell us about that? Sure. I think it's maybe an experience many listeners have. Um, uh, I had a woman who would come and clean my home twice a month in L.A., and one morning I just asked very innocently, are you thinking about having any more children? I thought she just had one young boy, and she was normally chatty, happy person. But when I asked, she started sobbing. Mm. And she told me about four children she had left behind in Guatemala. She said, I'm a single mom. My husband, he went off with another woman. And, you know, most days, Sonia, I could feed my kids once and maybe twice. But mm. always at night, they started crying out to me with hunger, and I had nothing left. And she showed me how she would gently coax them to roll over in bed at night, and t she would say to them, sleep face down so your stomach doesn't growl so much. Mm. She said she had left these four kids in Guatemala with her grandmother, come north to work in Los Angeles, and she hadn't seen them in 12 years. I don't know if you could imagine not seeing no. your children for 12 years or your parents for 12 years, but, um, and, um, you know, years later, her son came up on his own to come and find her. Oh, he and did. And he said... He did. And I said, and I asked, and he told me, you know, I came up on this series of buses um, and it was very difficult and all these bad things happened to me. But there are thousands of children riding on top of freight trains through Mexico to try and reach these mothers who left them behind many, many years ago. And so I wanted to write about this phenomenon of these millions of single moms who've come to the United States from Mexico, from Central America. I'm sure they're in Connecticut, they've come from Jamaica, they've come from the Dominican Republic, and left children behind, and then the modern-day odyssey these children make um, to try and reach their mothers. Sure. Well, how? what is a mother thinking? I mean, I can't imagine leaving my children behind. I mean, I want to check on them every 20 minutes of my my living day. <laughs> Yeah. So, so how how do you do that? How do you leave your kids? I mean, are are you thinking that perhaps you're going to send for them in about a year? Or, you know, what do you hear from these mothers? I think you're faced with two bad choices, and you have to choose among those. Uh, for my house cleaner, she had only been able to study third, to, to the third grade. Mm. The, that's the prospect she faced for her own children. Um, she she faced their hunger every day, and she said. She convinced herself, and I think migrants convince themselves that life in the U.S. will be easier than it actually will be, uh, in part because people here in the United States, out of pride when they talk back to folks in their home countries, tend to um, highlight all the good things, not mm. the bad things. So they talk about how they make $8 an hour and how they have a car. What they don't say is I'm 
I'm working two or three jobs. I'm stuffed into an apartment with three other families. I'm trying to pay bills here. I'm trying to send $100 home to my kids every month so they can eat and study. And I'm trying to save, and the number keeps going up because of increased border enforcement, $10,000 to give the smuggler to bring each child north. Mm. So they have this warped view of what, how easy this is going to be. You know, the, the, the streets are paved with gold in America, and they think th- this will just be one or two years, and it'll be worth that gamble. It'll be worth that separation. But it typically, I found, stretches into five or ten years separations and sometimes more. And these children despair of being with their moms again. So they set off on their own to come and find them. And last year, 41,000 children were caught at our border unaccompanied. That means they traveled north without a parent by their side alone and were apprehended at the U.S.-Mexico border. And most of those children are from three countries in Central America. So how young was the youngest one that you encountered? I heard of children as young as seven Mm. traveling on top of freight trains alone. And I traveled with a 12-year-old boy who was coming to find his mother in California. His mom had left him when he was one. And at 12, this kid crossed four countries by himself. I think at seven, your listeners wouldn't let their kid cross the street alone. That's right. Uh, and yet this kid actually made it to his mother in, in San Diego. And these children encounter uh, really this, uh, this host of people who are trying to rob, rape them, beat them, deport them, kill them as they travel north. So this is a very, very difficult journey. And most of them do not make it to our border. Most of oh. them, something bad happens to them in Mexico. They're deported um, to their home countries, defeated by this experience. Many of them, they're, they're, they're killed along the way. They're yeah. torn apart by the train wheels as they travel north or by every, other people uh, targeting them. Now, you know this because you took that journey yourself, correct? I do. I still, many years later, have the post-traumatic stress to prove Ooh. it. Uh, but I, I, I wanted to not just interview a boy who had made this journey, uh, but I wanted to show people what this journey is like and what life is like in these countries in Central America, what's pushing people out and what people are willing to do to to reach the United States, that really no wall is going to stop some of the kids that I saw who were so incredibly uh, determined that they would try 27, 28 times to get through uh, Mexico to reach our border. Uh, So I met, I I, I wanted to start at the beginning in Central America and go with a boy, but I realized, you know, these kids are running from all these dangers and I'm old. I can't run as fast as a 15 year old boy. So I would lose my subject. So I decided to find a boy who had made it to northern Mexico and then spend some time with him there, hope he would make it on to his mother in the United States, and then go back and do the journey exactly like he had done it a few weeks before. So that's what I did. I met Enrique. Um, I told the story of these tens of thousands of children who make this, this small army of kids who head north every year through the true story of one boy, um, Enrique, his mother leaves him when he's just five years old in Honduras. She walks away, she comes to the U.S., and 11 years later, he decides, I'm going to go and find her. He's desperate to be with her again. And I met him. He was in northern Mexico. He was on his eighth attempt to get through Mexico. Mm -hmm. I spent two weeks with him. Um, He was sleeping out on uh, the muddy banks of the Rio Grande, just trying to survive, eating once a day. And I watched his misery as a journalist play out. I wanted to show readers what that's like. And then I went back to his grandma's house and did this journey exactly like he had done it a few weeks before. So I traveled 
three months, 1,600 miles, and I went on top of seven freight trains and had way too many near misses. But um, my, my goal was to make readers feel like they're sitting there on top of the train experiencing this ride uh, and this journey uh, as Enrique did. Wow. I, I can't imagine. I, mean, I don't recommend it. Uh, no, no bathrooms, <laughs> no water stops. What was, if you can recall, you just said you had post-traumatic stress from it, but what, what was one of the worst things that you saw on that journey? Uh, I saw children who had lost arms and legs and fingers uh, and feet to the freight train. I saw people who had lost nearly half of their bodies to the freight train and survived. Mm. Um, I personally uh, almost had a branch swipe me off the top of the train in the south on my first train ride, and it swiped off. Uh, I was able to grab onto a rail on the top side of the car and pull myself back up on top, Mm. but that branch swiped off a boy on the car behind mine, and he probably uh, died because as you fall down, there's this sucking wind. As you fall down, it pulls you right into the wheels. Mm-hmm. I had a gangster try to get, grab me on top of the train to try and rape me, and I was able to get h- away from him and h- hop forward three cars um, to beg the conductor to save me from this guy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, And I had many advantages these children do not have. I had money. I could get off the train when it finally stopped uh, and you know, buy some tacos and sleep in a warm motel bed. And these children sleep in sewage culverts or in trees to protect themselves from predatory animals as they travel north. So uh, I went through six months of therapy to get rid of my nightmares. And still when I see a train, my heart starts to race, I start to sweat. Uh, And it's been many, many years. So uh, very difficult journey for these children. You know, I think that's really hard for an American to wrap their heads around that kind of existence. And the question would come up for an American why would these kids leave? What's the drive in them to, to put themselves through all that misery to get up to see a mother that they haven't seen in perhaps five to ten years? Well, I think the answer has changed really dramatically in recent years. When I started looking at this, you know, nearly two decades ago, it was to be with that mother who, who they had not seen in 10 or 15 years. They might have been left with a relative who, you know, being passed from relative to relative or an abusive relative or um, or, or they just had that longing to be with their mm-hmm. mother again, of course. But today, um, the, the primary driver is that these three countries, when you look at our southern border, the majority of people crossing that southern border um, are from three countries, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador. And these three countries are, are among the most dangerous countries on earth. They uh, are second only to Syria and Afghanistan in terms of uh, countries that are or have been at war um, in terms of homicide rates. So what you have is um, in, in recent years, the U.S. pressured, um, uh, uh, we spent about $8 billion to redirect the flow of drugs that were coming from Colombia uh, to the U.S., we're the largest consumer of illegal drugs on Earth, um, and so the narco's responded to that pressure. The drugs used to go, the drug flights used to go through the Caribbean. They responded to that pressure by instead landing in Central America in Honduras, and that, um, as a result of these narco's were trying to control this turf to move these drugs north. Um, this resulted in enormous uh, violence in, in places like Honduras. Uh, mm-hmm. And so you saw more narcos controlling uh, politicians in that country, judges, 
Um, and you saw more gangs reporting the narcos or it strengthened the hands of gangs. And so in these neighborhoods like Enrique's neighborhood in Honduras now, the gangs really control many of these neighborhoods. And they go to children who are 10 years old and say, you're going to work for us. And if you refuse uh, to join our gang, uh, we're going to murder you. And so that child is fleeing not to be recruited in the gang. And a girl is told by the gang leader, you're going to be my girlfriend or uh, my gang will kill you and exterminate your whole family. Mm. So what the United Nations has found is that six in 10 of these children now, the primary reason for leaving their countries in Central America is that somebody's trying to kill them. Uh, and so what I really emphasize in my stories in the New York Times in recent years is that these children are refugees. Uh, that is very different from someone coming for a better life, an economic migrant. That's someone who's running for their life. And after World War II, you know, during World War II, we turned back the St. Louis ship. Uh, we didn't allow it to dock at our ports, uh, full of 900 Jews. And those Jews were sent back to Germany and hundreds were killed in the Holocaust. We didn't let Anne Frank's family into the United States. Uh, and after World War II, we said, never again. If people are running from harm, we will protect them. And mm -hmm. we're not doing that. Mm. You have a, a crazy story about uh, a decapitated head in uh, Honduras and how it was being played with. Do you want to share that with us? Well, I, I, I think it's a terrible story, but it's a story of hope in a way, because uh, I wanted to see, uh, you know, um, my message really is we keep trying the same three failed approaches to reduce, uh, to deal with the illegal immigration issue, to mm -hmm. try to reduce the flow of people coming north without permission. We try border enforcement, we try guest worker programs, and we try legalization. And if you look deeply at those three uh, approaches, they simply have not worked. Mm -hmm. uh, and But what does work is to, to, you have to deal with what's pulling people here, jobs, but primarily now you have to deal with what's pushing them out of these uh, countries in Central America, which is this violence. And um, in 2015, late 2015, the U.S. Congress recognized this, and they doubled foreign aid to Central America, trying to address these root causes through violence prevention programs that have worked in Boston, that have worked in Los Angeles. And I went to look at how these were working, these programs, in the most violent neighborhood in what for four years in a row was the murder capital of the world, San Pedro Sula, Honduras. And in that hot spot of violence. So three years ago, yes, uh, four years ago, um, the six gangs controlled this neighborhood so completely that they would play soccer in the middle of the street in broad daylight with the head of someone that they had just decapitated. But the U.S. went into this uh, this neighborhood and a few other pilot neighborhoods, the worst places of the worst, and we funded outreach centers for kids to go to get mentors and get off the streets and get help getting jobs. We funded a program that's worked in L.A. Um, you identify kids who have the nine of the risk factors of going into gangs, and you put them into your family counseling, and that reduces by uh, 77% their odds of engaging wow. in crime or abusing drugs or alcohol. And I think most importantly, you know, here in the U.S., about half of homicides get solved. You get a conviction. Mm -hmm. But in Honduras, that's less than 4%. Mm. So basically, 96% get off scot-free. You can kill somebody, total broad daylight, uh, and get away with it because 
the, the people know that if you step forward as a witness, what the gangs do is they kill you and they leave you in the middle of the street the next day as a message to everyone with sapo, uh, frog, written on your chest in magic marker. That means frogs talk too much. Mm. So we funded a nonprofit that goes into these neighborhoods and works with families um, and convinces them over months to cooperate, to testify. And I witnessed this. They, they testify under a black burqa uh, with rubber boots on, with gloves on, so, you, so the gang members can't see even the color of your skin. They put that person in a black burqa in a little wooden closet with a one-way mirror, and it's got wheels on it, and they roll you into the courtroom. So you're covered in a black <laughs> burqa inside a closet, <sighs> and through a voice disorder, you testify. And now in this neighborhood, more than half of homicides are getting uh, convictions. So less impunity. People are the, the bad guys are going to jail. Mm-hmm. So all of that reduced homicides in this terrible neighborhood where they played soccer with uh, people's heads by 62 percent in two years. Mm-hmm. And it cut the number of children fleeing to the north by half. By half. Um, by half. That works. Uh, to me, that's a brilliant investment. Uh, you know, spend $100 million on this in Honduras versus billions of dollars you have to spend on these kids once they arrive at our border. Uh, instead, this administration is looking to cut the State Department budget and these programs by 30%. And instead, build a stupid wall, uh, which we know uh, that 97% of people who try repeatedly to get past the walls that exist are able to do so. We know that 66% of people who have who have become illegal in the United States over the last decade have not come across our southern border. They have come here with a visa on an airplane, and they've overstayed their visa. Right, two thirds. Mm-hmm. Um, so and and so and we know that the Chinese built the mother of all walls, <laughs> and it didn't keep out the Mongols. Right. <laughs> um, so uh, we know that this isn't. Uh, as effective as many other things that we can spend our money on that actually do work. Mm-hmm. So what do we have to do? I mean, that program sounds amazing. The numbers are amazing. The turnaround time is amazing. The success is amazing. But you're right. We have our own wall to face, and it's this administration. We know that they're trying to cut funding. We, you know, we know they don't have a sympathy towards these kids coming over. So that's the game that we've got to play. Do you have any ideas as how to deal with this roadblock? Um, you know, I think the immigration, I, I think you have to come with it uh, at it from the understanding that most immigrants do not want to leave their country. They'd mm-hmm. rather stay at home with all the things, and this comes as a great shock to so many college students I speak to, who, you know, we've been taught that the U.S. is the greatest nation on earth. Everybody wants to be here, right? Mm-hmm. Surely. Um, but the reality is, and I learned this from my own mother, I'm the child of immigrants. You know, most immigrants would rather stay where they're from with everything they know and love, to be with their families and their culture and their language, uh, and not have to start all over in a foreign land. Uh, so I, I think you have to come at it from that understanding. And I, I think we've gotten the immigration policies um, produced by the lobbyists that are strongest in this country, the business lobby that wants cheap, compliant workers. Mm. And um, I, I think that uh, immigration is a wedge issue that is used to mobilize both the Democratic and Republican base. And mm-hmm. wedge issues do not, uh, I know uh, that we are now debating immigration in, in Congress and uh, immigration reforms, but as, as, as many immigration lawyers have told me, wedge issues do not get resolved. They get used 
to mobilize your base. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to develop um, a cadre of Americans who contact their congressional leaders and say, um, I want more of this kind of program and not the same three things we keep trying that have failed. We, we have tried border enforcement. We're spending $19 billion a year on this. Um, we've tried guest worker programs, and yet the ones we've done in the past, you're supposed to come here and leave after a certain period of time, but most people don't leave. And we've tried legalization, which is wonderful for people who live in enormous fear right now. Um, I go to schools, elementary schools, junior high schools, high schools. Kids have their hair falling out, immigrant children. They're developing nervous twitches. Mm -hmm. uh, they're crying in class. There's been a 40% increase in apprehensions of immigrants in the interior since President T Trump took office. And children are terrified that their parent will be apprehended and deported away from them again. Um, so I think we need people to push their congressional leaders instead of doing these three things. Uh, you know, as I was mentioning, they're, they're, people live in enormous fear. But when we last legalized people, uh, they, they were able to come out of shadows and become legal. But then they said to friends and family down south, come on up. And we saw the number, again, of people in this country unlawfully rise. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to push for this third way of addressing uh, with our congressional leaders, calling them, sending them letters saying, support these kinds of programs in Central America that are reducing violence instead of cutting these programs. And let's, in the meantime, while we try to fix these countries or work with these countries on reforms, on reducing violence and reducing corruption, we need to provide a safe harbor for these children in the United States. Um, we have cut the number of refugees we take in this country from 130,000 a year pre 9-11, uh, 95,000 under President Obama to 45,000 a year today. And in the first three months of this fiscal year, we only let in 5,000 refugees. Mm -hmm. I mean, Germany let in a million in one year. Mm -hmm. This is incredible. I, I mean, to call this anemic, is uh is ridiculous and my feeling at least is that if you add up all the kids who come here uh in this way every year uh 41,000 were apprehended at our southern border it, last year it wouldn't fill up one football stadium mm -hmm. are you telling me that americans can't muster that amount of compassion for innocent children who are running from harm uh from our neighbors to the south I don't buy that. I think Americans are compassionate people, and they will respond if they understand the issue. And that's it. I, I totally agree with you. I think that Americans are compassionate people, and it's people like you who are painting the picture of what these immigrant children truly go through that are heroes to us. Sonia Nazario, uh, the author of Enrique's Journey, Pulitzer Prize winner, I want to thank you so much for sharing your insight with us. Thank you, and I hope it helps. All right, children, settle down. Everyone take a seat on the rug, and we'll all listen to a nice story. I want to hear Cinderella. No, Thomas the Tank Engine. Now, children, you know since President Trump took office, there's only one book in the library. The Art of the Deal. No! Not again. Hey, that's my favorite book. In this episode, little Donald's happily playing building blocks with his brother Robert. 
I ended up using all of my blocks, and then all of his. And when I was done, I created a beautiful building, Trump writes. I liked it so much that I glued the whole thing together, and that was the end of Robert's blocks. That's not good, Sharon. No, he's mean. Cool. Haha. <laughs> I'm gonna do that to you, Marco. Now, children, let's continue. <clears throat> I actually gave a teacher a black eye. I punched my music teacher in the second grade because I didn't think he knew anything about music. And I almost got expelled, Trump says. I'm not proud of that, but it's clear evidence that even early on, I had a tendency to stand up and make my opinions known in a very forceful way. No! I like the music Don't teacher. hit him! That boy is so mean. Uh, I don't want to hear this story anymore. That's because you're a loser, Marco. This story isn't for losers like you. No, you're the loser. Yeah? Well, my daddy's going to deport your daddy all the way back to Mexico. My daddy's not afraid of your daddy because he says your daddy can't even find it on the map. <laughs> Marco! Baron! Enough! If you keep fighting like this, I'll just have to... You can't punish me. I know. I know. My daddy says those who can't become top models teach. (laughs) All right. Now, children, let's stand and recite the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance allegiance to to President Trump, Trump, who rules the United States of America, and to his republic, and Richard Stans. Richard Stans, you're so stupid. Trump, it's for which it stands, not Richard Stans. My daddy's gonna make him Secretary of State. There is no Richard Stans, Baron. My daddy says if it's in the Pledge of Allegiance, it must be true. That's not correct, Baron. You talk to me like that one more time, I'll have you fired. Yes, Baron. Children, let's continue. One One nation under Trump with liberty and justice for all. Big thanks again to our guest, Sonia Nazario, Pulitzer Prize recipient for Enrique's Journey, who, on a daily basis, makes this world a better place for all of us through her talent and passion for her life's work. To Sandy and Richard Riccardi, the geniuses behind the musical parody, we need a little Xanax. And where would I be without my wonderful students here at Western Connecticut State University, the Politahoot players, Mark Keith Black, Ashley G. and Alana Hill, Gabe Jones, Milana Martinez, and Xavier Washington. Politahoo can be heard for free at iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio, or on our website at politahoot.net. As always, thanks, Pete. Politahoot! <laughs> <laughs>